Hi, I'm Dave Schilling. And I'm Jonah Ray. And we're the hosts of Galaxy Brains, a podcast for asking life's big questions. Well, the biggest questions you have after watching a movie or TV show. Yes, exactly. This is a... You hear that, Mr. Schilling? Our first trailer! You were so young, only 38! That sound, Mr. Schilling, that is the sound of inevitability. 39 comes for us all, buddy. That is the sound of our death. Pull yourself together, man! We're not dying, we still have a chance to live! If we find the architect, who will hopefully stop the show from collapsing in on itself, we just need to do a show! And I think this is gonna be like a really good episode. God? Mindy Kaling? Trinity? Close! On this episode, we're covering everyone's favorite tall, pale weirdo. Jonah? Hey. Close again! Neo and the Matrix, a film series about how nothing truly ends, time is a flat circle, and galaxy brains will live on forever. That's all in the movie? It sure is, Jonah. And I've said it once, and I'll say it maybe for the last time. This is Galaxy Brains, and today, red pills, lots of leather, and a goodbye to all that. Take us away, Steppenwolf! Steppenwolf's back! Wow! I will bathe in your fear. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, a podcast where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. I'm Dave Schilling. And I'm Dave's own personal oracle, who isn't quite good of an oracle, Jonah Ray, because I would have seen some stuff coming down for this show. And each week on the show, we start with the logical brain, unplug ourselves with the critical brain, question the oracle of the interrogation brain, and of course, bend the world like a spoon to our will with the galaxy brain. You can call me the one. Can I call you one, daddy? Buy me dinner first, Jonah, okay? I have, multiple times. Never I once! I pay for everything! Joining us for this veritable middle feast is comedian and our pal Ben Meckler. But before we pop a little blue pill and wait for the magic to begin, we need to explore the simulation with... Logic Brain. Dave, I'm pretty sure it's a red pill. Is it? Oh, God! This was Viagra. The Matrix film series is not only one of the most influential film series of all time, it's also one of the most controversial. More controversial than the Star Wars sequels? Yes, there's no one in the Matrix as lovable as Babu Freak. (laughs) You're not wrong. The Matrix blew our fucking minds back in 1999, the same summer as the release of the Star Wars prequel, Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Guess which one of those movies I saw in theaters? Obviously, Star Wars. You were like 15 when The Matrix came out. Too young for those filthy words and those gory gun battles. Yeah, and I also had bad taste in movies. We'll get into it later. I cannot believe you didn't go see The Matrix. Didn't see it. Nope. Did your parents go, all right, summertime, Dave. You get to pick one blockbuster. That's it. Just one movie. Uh, Yeah, basically. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't see Because I didn't go see R-rated movies in theaters when I was that age. I was very serious about not breaking that rule. And so I saw The Matrix on HBO at home on a little tiny fucking tube TV. And I'm like, this stinks. It was mind-blowing when it came out, bud. Yeah, so I I had bad taste in movies. Whatever. The Matrix did, in fact, change everything about movies. There's the bullet time stuff, the wire flu, all the gun battles, the inventive camera work. My God, some of the stuff that they pull off in this movie is insane. And a twisty plot that makes audiences around the world question their own reality. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage. Born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. 
Yeah, thank God for The Matrix, the movie that told millions of people it's okay to doubt everything, including science. Unfortunately, Jonah's got a point. The Matrix is one of those mini 90s sci-fi artifacts that commanded you to not believe everything you see or hear or read. Fight Club's satirical take on masculinity ended up missing a generation who thought it was all sincere. The X-Files trust no one tagline became a rallying cry for the worst people in the world. And the Matrix's plea to take the red pill is used by far-right political groups and MRA Redditors to drum up new followers. Not exactly what Lily and Lana Wachowski intended when they sat down to write the first film. Which is probably why Lana Wachowski agreed to direct a fourth movie in the series, try to set the record straight. You know, th this Matrix kills fascists. That's the bumper sticker that's taped onto every poster. <laughs> It should be, if you've seen the movie. One of the other reasons Lana Wachowski directed a fourth film, Warner Brothers threatened to make one without her. Ooh. Which might be why the first half of The Matrix Resurrections is... Dave, should we deploy one last spoiler alert before you get into this? Spoiler alert! There it is. The first half of The Matrix Resurrections is a thinly veiled attack on Warner Brothers itself, corporate greed, and the very idea of rebooting The Matrix at all. It's fucking wild. But in order to reboot our own minds, we're going to have to tackle these bizarre ideas in a segment called, what's it called? It's called Critical Brain. That's what it's called. All right. So we should talk about the fact that I did not see The Matrix in theaters a little bit more, shall we? Let's talk about why you didn't see what was arguably one of the biggest movies of that year. Probably the, like, I mean, if episode one never came out. It would have been the year of The Matrix. The Matrix is surely the most important movie that came out in the 90s, at least from a blockbuster film standpoint. There was stuff that was leading up to this at the time. Oh, of course. You, know, you had hackers leading up to this, right? Yeah, uh, Johnny Mnemonic starring Keanu Reeves had already come out. Cyberpunk was in the ether. But also like a lot of like goth industrial like music was becoming super popular. And so that like was being kind of co-opted by the mainstream. And there's even like an argument to be had that the movie Dark City. Alex Perez, classic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like that had a ton of stuff that The Matrix lifted from. But I think it was just in the ether, that style of just the trust no one stuff that you were talking about. Yeah. This was just everywhere in the 90s. And... To your point, goth music, industrial music, Rammstein. Rammstein. <laughs> Rammstein, whatever, was my girlfriend Hallie's favorite band in the 90s. Du, du hast, du hast mich. And she would not listen to anything like that now. She listens to like Kim Petras and like pop music, but it was so pervasive. That's what happens to all goth girls, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. They heard the Robin song from a while back and they're like, yeah, you know what? I'm changing it up. Show me love. Yeah, that's a good song too. It was a perfect storm when The Matrix came out. Everything was aligned for the culture to embrace this movie. But just the aesthetics weren't enough. It had to also be an excellent movie. And it was an excellent movie. I'm going to reveal something truly demented about myself. I, as a uh, prepubescent child, 13, 14, whatever, I saw Bound before I saw The Matrix. Bound, of course, is the Wachowski's first feature film. It is a neo-noir, a great, taut, sort of single-location thriller that has shades of The Matrix in it in terms of the camera work. The camera work and the way the camera moves and like it comes down from the ceiling or like through a peephole that you're seeing things happen 
that are very Hitchcockian, but also clearly informed how they would shoot the Matrix later on. Old camera moves and setups that like, you have to know they're going to work because it's a lot of time to make these things happen. And then you have to use them. You're locked into them. Yep. And if they don't work when you get into the edit, it's a wild thing. So there's a huge amount of confidence that I think the Wachowskis have always had. And I don't know much about them. They wrote the film Assassins. Oh, really? For Richard Donner. It's always so fun to write Assassin because you get to write ass twice. <laughs> Save that in the edit. <laughs> Assassins was Stallone. Sly Stallone. And Banderas and Julianne Moore is the quote-unquote love interest, which is how they referred to a female actor back then. Very funny, though, that uh, Stallone in this movie that the Wachowskis wrote, the Wachowskis would go on to make The Matrix, which would pretty much influence the idea of uh, uh, digging deeper and thinking something bigger is going on, which, of course, is what the QAnon movement is all about. And now Sly Stallone is a part of the QAnon movement. As far as we can tell, he has denied it. Well, I don't know. Maybe tell him to not put on the hat and say into the storm on a post on a private yeah, jet. Yeah, if you don't know. Which is also like so weird to be on a private jet, like which has now become synonymous with Jeffrey Epstein. The thing they say they're trying to end, I don't know. I find it very funny. If you don't know what we're talking about, Sylvester Stallone posted a photo on Instagram of him on a private jet wearing a Quantum of Solace hat. And Quantum of Solace, of course, the James Bond movie where a bunch of the villains walk around with Q on their lapels. And so there's a cue on his hat, and the caption says, Into the Storm. Which was the title of the uh, the documentary. Yep, cue Into the Storm on HBO, which you should watch. Stallone then denied that he was making a political statement and that he just happened to like the movie Quantum of Solace a lot. He's like an intelligent guy, but he's not a smart guy. He's not, no. But we're off topic. Let's talk about assassins. The Wachowskis wrote together. Donner comes on. He says, we're changing everything. I'm bringing Brian Helgeland on to rewrite the whole script. The Wachowskis say, that sucks. Take our name off. And they refused to take their names off of the movie. So then they say, if we're going to make an another movie, let's direct it ourselves. And that's how Bound happened. They just said, we want to direct a movie. And they got to direct a movie. Dino De Laurentiis, who has been known for like taking chances and also wanting to launder money. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It was distributed by Gramercy Pictures in the United States. And Dino produced it with spelling films. You know, they probably thought, oh, we can just cobble together some money in Europe. And if it doesn't work at the box office, we can just sell it as a jack-off film. Its budget was $6 million, which is like at that time, like a lot, but not too much. That was like a kind of a small price for a movie. And it made $7 million. So it made, it's, hey, made its money back. I guess someone was like, you know, their last movie just made a million dollars. A whole million dollars. And they're like, well, let's give them a huge budget thing. They're like, what if they were like, I don't know, it's only a million dollars. It's like, have you ever made a million dollars? Have you ever seen a million dollars in your life? So The Matrix took a long time to come together. It was a thing that they had been kind of toying around with for a while. They started thinking about this in the, in the mid-90s. And in 1996, they pitched the role of Neo to Will Smith. And this is important to note because Will Smith has recently gone on record to finally talk about it. And he's like, I just didn't. If you make me Neo, then Morpheus has to be white because we can't both be black because it's like the studio dictates there's got to be a white lead. But it was planned that Morpheus would be black or one of these characters would be black. So the studio said, well, if you're going to get Will Smith to be Neo, then Morpheus has got to be white. So Morpheus was going to be Val Kilmer, Ooh. according to Will Smith. At that time, not so bad. He would he would have done it very dry. You know, it's, it's like, you know, I can't imagine anyone outside of Lawrence Fishburne being Morpheus. You take the red pill. 
You stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Because he has, I mean, like, one, like, way more range than Val Kilmer. I don't know if you've seen MacGruber yet, but he's awesome in the new MacGruber show. Lawrence Fishburne? He rules. Oh, that's awesome. Did he replace Val Kilmer's character? No, no, no. That's Billy Zane. <laughs> anyway, Val Kilmer was going to play Morpheus. He would have been breathily talking about uh, various philosophical ideas. Whereas Lawrence Fishburne had this beautiful rich, deep voice that's hypnotizing. I feel like Val Kilmer would have put me to sleep. And what Lawrence Fishburne does so great in that role too is that he is very knowledgeable and very much the uh, the guru, the master. But there's always that urgency there where he knows like the ticking time clock is like, that like really propels those scenes, I think. I'm going to go out on a limb here. Here's my galaxy brain take. Lawrence Fishburne, good actor. He's great. Yes, he's so, so good. But to go back to your original point about how did they get this movie made and where did they come from, they ended up making a 600-page shot-by-shot storyboard with two comic book artists to convince the studio, you should give us $60 million to make this movie. Yeah, they were like, we'll make you upwards to $61 million. (laughs) (laughs) And that worked. And The Matrix comes out three years after they approach Will Smith to play Neo. And it is a huge hit. It cost $63 million to make. It made $466.3 million at the global box office, according to our good friends at Box Office Mojo. So that is amazing stuff. The movie, I didn't see it in theaters, but what did I see in theaters? The Matrix sequels, because by that point, I had no choice and I was 17. So I could go see the Matrix movies. What a good little boy. I'm a good guy. I'm not sure if the listeners would get that by listening to you talk for two seconds, but... I'm a good guy. Yeah. The Matrix Reloaded comes out four years after the original. And by then, Matrix fever had swept the nation. For those not around at that time, it was a lot like the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it was kind of like Omicron and that it spread very wildly. Everyone started wearing tiny sunglasses. (laughs) Yes, people were wearing leather jackets and tiny sunglasses. 2003, it reaches a fever pitch. The Matrix Reloaded comes out in that summer. The Matrix video game, Enter the Matrix, comes out, which you have to play in order to know what certain things are in the movie which chapped my ass, but of course I played the game. And then the Animatrix comes out on DVD. This was before streaming, so if you wanted to do these sort of ancillary products, they would all just come out on DVD and you go buy them. Some people say it's the best follow-up to The Matrix that there is. I remember when I was working at Amoeba and I noticed that we consistently sold the Animatrix DVDs. Yeah, it was part of the experience. And this was the time when filmmakers were toying with the idea of doing multimedia projects. It is something that is now just accepted practice that, oh, if you're going to go see the new Marvel movie, maybe you should have watched Hawkeye. But at the time, this was sort of like one of the most revolutionary ideas in entertainment is to do this cross-platform story. Yeah. I loved the Animatrix. I did not love The Matrix Reloaded. I did not love Matrix Revolutions, the third film. Most people didn't. People thought they were disappointments that didn't live up to the high bar that the first film set. And the end of The Matrix Reloaded was very, very controversial because it says, well, maybe Neo isn't the one. And nobody wants to hear that. People want to see him flying around, stopping bullets, stabbing people's necks. And they got that in the first one. Which is why The Matrix Resurrections is such a fascinating little 
glimpse into the mind of Lana Wachowski because it is a movie that challenges the audience. It is very transgressive. And again, spoilers, spoilers here. The entire movie is kind of a broadside against the idea that you should make another Matrix movie. And who owns the legacy of Neo and Trinity quite literally in this movie? The machines have stolen the dead corpses of Neo and Trinity that were left behind in the machine city at the end of Matrix Revolutions, and they have brought them back to life like zombies, like monsters, like Frankenstein monsters, and are using them and their power of love (laughs) to run their city. (laughs) Like, this is no joke. This sounds awesome. Neo and Trinity love each other so much that they are able to power the entire machine city basically by themselves. (laughs) They are sucking the energy out of these beatific angelic characters and this is the whole movie is just like neo and trinity are perfect and beautiful and you're trying to ruin them (laughs) which is and by you i mean warner brothers because the villain of the movie which i won't spoil is like the suits told me to do this and the suits said i have to do that and the suits said this it's like oh you mean the suits from Warner Brothers are telling you that this is bad. Does Algy Rhythm show up in this from Space Jam Legacy? And the entire world is going to know the name of King Algy Rhythm. This is starting to sound like a uh, more indictful version of it as opposed to a celebratory. If anything, Matrix Resurrections is a, a response to Space Jam, A New Legacy. <laughs> yes, it kind of is in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I don't know... <laughs> if this was like per- particularly making fun of Space Jam and New Legacy or not, or the idea of Warner Brothers as a whole, but it's certainly making fun of Hollywood. So it makes me wonder, like, will there be another Matrix movie? Is there even room to do that after this? The ending does kind of open the door for more stories, but because of the contempt that is dripping on every frame of this movie toward Warner Brothers, it seems unlikely. So then this is it. Yeah, I mean, maybe this might be it for The Matrix. And, and you know, I got to say it, Jonah, this might be it for, for us as a show. Wait, really? We couldn't find The Architect in time, so the show's just over? Yeah, I think unlike The Matrix, which is a massively successful feature film franchise, we, we were a podcast about movies, TV, and overthinking. Still kind of hazy on what that actually means. I, I meant to bring it up, but I didn't really... I just figured I didn't get Guys, it, but... First of all, we all got it. Oh. Second of all, you forgot something. What, what's that, Kylie? It's where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. You said it earlier. Oh, yeah, you're right. Sorry, we're, we're getting really meta here, aren't we? I mean, a sign that we've run out of ideas. If you can't make a joke, meta joke. We really have done it all, haven't we? You got to go on that coffee day with the Mater Suspiriorum. I got hit on by a talking steak. I kissed myself. You tried to get me into a multi-level marketing scheme where you sell leggings to your friends and neighbors. That was weird. And that was a turn, too. LulaRoe. I, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a reference that's aged really well, hasn't it? But really, the most important thing we did is meet our new friend, Kylie. Hey, Kylie. It looks like you have something to say. I certainly do. I have to go now. My planet needs me. Bye, Kylie. We'll miss you. When we come back, our final guest ever, Ben Meckler. We're going to talk about The Matrix. Listen to this ad. You might learn something. (laughs) Welcome back to Galaxy Brains. Kylie died on the way back to her home planet. 
Anyway, the wheels have fully come off this wagon. We've gone completely meta on this show. But let's put all of that aside to talk to comedy writer, amateur film critic, and Twitter sensation Ben Meckler, who might be the biggest Matrix fan I know. Ben, thank you for driving the final stake into the heart of this podcast. <laughs> hey, listen, happy to be your Van Helsing any day. Is that true? Am I really your biggest Matrix fan friend? No, this is this is called uh, hyperbole. I don't know if you've heard of this, but that's what we do. Well, you have to say that because it's a show. It would be less interesting if I was like fifth or sixth down the line. And maybe you did text some other some other people first. I mean, we should have had Ben on for when we did the Mortal Kombat because he had a whole fucking podcast about every character. And you've both been on it. Yeah. So I'm just, it just seems like a whiff that I wasn't on that one. But I am happy to talk about The Matrix. I'm sorry we did not have you on the Mortal Kombat podcast. We had professional wrestling announcer Excalibur on and he was a great guest. Thank you, Excalibur, for being on the show. I get that Excalibur's a higher profile guest than me. I get it. It's you guys fun. might have a comparable number of Twitter followers. His might be higher quality. Yeah, a lot of wrestling fans. <laughs> I love wrestling fans. I am a wrestling fan, but I mean, come on, goddamn. Some of you people are fucking fools. <laughs> have you met some Mystery Science Theater fans? Yes, of course I have. Horrible. No, I'm just kidding. I love fandom. It's great. Speaking of fandom, The Matrix, one of the things that every fan loves without any reservations. Yeah, nobody has a weird, bad opinion about anything Matrix related, and everybody feels exactly the same about all three and now all four Matrix films. That's known. <laughs> <laughs> I have got to say, this is going to be a big pronouncement about the history of, of fandom. But I think as much as The Phantom Menace corroded the minds of genre film and TV lovers, it was really the Matrix sequels that codified anger and vile and shitty behavior in fans. When those two movies came out, some f switch flipped in people's minds where they're like, ah, fuck this. I am owed something from these movies. I think that sounds right. I mean, it's tough. So I was like, let's see, when the Matrix sequels came out, what was it, 2003? Yeah. So I was like 14. I was just starting to get into like the ain't it cool news world and seeing what like film fans were saying. And I think it was this weird split of like, at my school, everyone was like, those Matrix sequels are pretty cool. They were R-rated movies that our parents took us to because they were too famous to say no. <laughs> and then I think online, I saw the bile, but it seemed so like weirdly directed where I was like, I don't get what everyone's so mad about. It seemed really expensive and I got to go see it at a theater. I'm fine. I mean, these days, like when bad fans are angry about something, they harass and threaten to murder the creators of whatever the movie is. But like, what were people even doing then other than just voicing disappointment in like 2003. I mean, I feel like there were people who probably sent George Lucas death threats about episode one. Oh, for sure. But they had to write a letter, so there were less. <laughs> yeah, there was way less, and you could kind of filter it out. <laughs> it's more of a time commitment. It was always on a message board or a server that no one would ever find, or an IRC chat thing, and it's or, you know, it was someone's Angel Fire account of some sort. I mean, even in a way where you can't even, like, follow the receipts. But I remember when I started getting into horror, I got into Halloween and I saw Halloween two. And then some guy at the video store says, skip Halloween three. And I was like, oh yeah, I heard that one sucks. He's like, my God, it. it's worthless. It's like, it's no good. And that became like, like a viral thing. So everyone just knew that everyone hated it, but it's actually a, a phenomenal movie. But like, it's like, they got so much hate for it that they changed course and they brought Michael Myers back. And this is pre-internet. This is just uh, like a vibe they got. And so I think this type of interaction between 
entertainment and the audience has been there for a while, but, you know, it used to be a little... And then obviously that transition into, like, Will Ferrell, like, trolling Matrix Reloaded on, like, the VMAs, and then it becomes culturally a thing. Yeah, I think it was harder to influence those movies back then, but also in some ways easier. It's paradoxical, which is perfect for them where we're talking about the Matrix. So when you go to a video store and you're like, I'm a burgeoning, you know, nerd, geek, whatever pejorative term you want to apply to people who like genre entertainment, and you're going to a video store and someone says, fuck that movie, it stinks. Yeah, of course you're going to be like, yeah, I guess that adult man is right. And I don't know what I'm talking about. So it's like, you know, when, when people are online and they may not feel one way or the other, they tend to just kind of get swept up in the whichever angle the discourse is, unless they're antagonistic in nature. And then they start to like go the other way and defend. And they say, actually, it's the best one. Yeah. Well, now we exist in the time of like cultural tribal warfare, where it's just like, there's no more like the general audiences. And then there's like a few dozen people mad about this, a few dozen people mad about that. Now it's literally like there are factions. Yeah. And they threaten to kill each other on a daily basis on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, do I like Prometheus as much as I defend it? I don't know for sure, but it's been so long that I told people to relax on that movie. They're like, well, you love Prometheus. I was like, I mean, I liked it a lot. <laughs> it was fun. I had a good time at the theater seeing all the stuff I've never seen in the real world. Yeah, you tiny-brained rube, you should have hated that movie. That's the part that I really don't like about online discourse. And you saw the beginnings of that on AinItCoolNews.com's message board. I do think, and I tweeted about this because famously Harry Knowles, the owner and operator and uh, just general piece of shit who ran that website, AinItCoolNews, he saw The Matrix maybe a month early or something. This was when early screenings of movies were still novel and they kind of like sent a select dweebs to go see it and then plant the seeds of it being awesome into the into the zeitgeist soft power soft power yeah <laughs> desert power uh-huh. so he saw episode one really early and he's like misa loved jar jar binks and all this stuff then people like ethered him in the comments like you idiot you don't know what you're talking about but then with the matrix reloaded when that came out in 2003 he sees it early and he's like guys here's a crazy thing about the matrix reloaded there are vampires and werewolves in the movie it's wild and so people this brain worm got into people's heads of like oh there are vampires Vampires and werewolves in the Matrix? Amazing. He's going to fight the Wolfman? That's rad. <laughs> that is not what happened. There is one scene in the Chateau, which is a great fight, with all of these kind of like deleted, or what were they called? They were deleted programs from previous versions of the Matrix that were hanging out in the current Matrix. Yeah. Exactly. They're sort of like characters from genre movies that are just like in the Matrix. Kind of. Yeah, kind of in the Matrix, kind of not. Well, kind of genre movies. They're kind of just like dudes who look like all the other people in the Matrix, but like you'll have a line where Monica Bellucci's like, you can only kill him with a silver bullet. And it's like, okay, I guess I guess that's a werewolf now? And then someone just briefly like, oh, those are vampires, by the way. But you have to read the manual for Enter the Matrix to know that. But they are. Yeah, but it really doesn't matter. And like he made it this huge thing that everybody took seriously <laughs> instead of it being a very subtle kind of like wink and nod. Like these are vampires and werewolves. He takes it literally and it changes people's opinion of what the movie is going to be. Yeah, they went in expecting a monster mash and they got a classical yeah. <laughs> Matrix mash instead. Where's my graveyard smash? <laughs> you can't just lie to people about movies before they see them. <laughs> you can't. Wait a minute. Hold on. For those who don't know, Ben's whole thing is to do this. 
on Twitter. Whenever the embargo <laughs> breaks on a big movie, Ben will tweet a fake tweet about how he saw it and something bizarre happens in the movie. Like, Christ, is that my whole thing? It's, it's a big thing. <laughs> it's a big part of your appeal. It's a big part of the slice. It's a lot of what I have to offer. Husband, father, writer, Twitter... What's the word I'm looking for? Malcontent? No, that's not nice. Bugs Bunny-esque figure. Rascal. Yeah, you've become a parody of the worst aspects of film Twitter. It's like you were able to just, in a joyous way, take these people down, cut them down to size. I, I, that's what I love about like what you do. It's like it's this like very well-aware thing. Of, it's, like, it's like, this is how you people sound when you do these things. Mocking people. In a sense. You are definitely mocking people. I call it mocking 2.0. You're like a court jester <laughs> of Twitter. How did you feel as a fan of The Matrix who did not go through the anger that so many fans went through after the end of Matrix Revolutions, finding out there would be a fourth Matrix movie? Well, finding out there would be a fourth Matrix movie was a complicated thing because they announced a different fourth Matrix movie. Yeah. Before this one, and it turned into this. Because first they were, I don't remember exactly who the writer was and probably shouldn't call him out anyway, but like, I think originally it had leaked or Warner Brothers had maybe announced that they were developing another Matrix that I think at the time they'd said was like a Morpheus origin story. And when I heard that, I was like, uh, I don't know. Like, I'd like to see another Matrix movie. This was like, what, probably 2016. So we hadn't quite done The Force Awakens for every franchise yet, which is crazy because that was like not that many years ago. <laughs> but uh, I think at that time I was like, I don't know. I don't like need it, but I guess I'd be happy to see more Matrix. But I also don't know how interested I am in The Matrix without the Wachowskis being involved. And then I feel like after that, it was announced that like Lana was back, Keanu was back, Carrie Ann Moss was back, and they were doing a new Matrix. Then I became very interested. And then I'd heard like murmurs of what it was about. And then I would say that was a point where I became like ecstatic, where I was like, oh, awesome. They're just pushing even harder into what they were getting at with like Reloaded and Revolutions and then also becoming some kind of Ouroboros snake. And I was into that because that at least sounded interesting. And at this point in time in the world of entertainment, I will take that over literally anything else. I've never been the type where I get upset when some it's like I either get excited or I don't care. Like I've never gotten upset when I heard about a remake. But I hear some guy in like uh, seeing the trailer in a theater going like, ugh. Ugh, Hollywood. Hollywood. All they ever do is sequels since literally movies existed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I guess everyone forgets train leaving the station. <laughs> <laughs> Just not as compelling as the first. What could I say? Audiences running headfirst into the screen hoping to catch the train. Don't leave me. Don't leave me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting that you, that you say this, you know, because the movie seems to have or <laughs> did have this ambivalence towards its existence, that it was in many ways aggressively pissed off that it existed. And Lily Wachowski, who did not work on the movie, she is focusing on TV and other things. She did not participate. She said in 2015, when promoting Jupiter Ascending, that the idea of returning to the Matrix was a particularly repelling idea in these times. So Lily, she's all out on it. She's like, I, I don't want to participate. I don't know if that led to her not wanting direct Matrix Resurrections. I can't say. Lana Wachowski, she says in an interview in September, and this was after her parents had passed away, she said, I couldn't have my mom and dad, yet suddenly I had Neo and Trinity, arguably the two most important characters in my life. It was immediately comforting to have these two characters alive again, and it's super simple. You can look at it and say, okay, these two people die, and okay, bring these two people back to life, and oh, doesn't that feel good? 
yeah, it did. It's simple. And this is what art does. And this is what stories do. They comfort us and they're important. So as much as the first like 45 minutes of The Matrix Resurrections is like, fuck sequels, fuck reboots, fuck this whole idea of the studio giving this to somebody else and pissing on it. But it clearly caused both Lily and Lana Wachowski a lot of distress. And that is in the script. But by minute 45, 46, wherever, like we're deep in the second act, it's just a Matrix movie where it's very sincere. And this has always been a movie series about love. (laughs) I forget who tweeted this. It might have been, been David Grabinski, the director, who said like, some people are saying they're surprised at how much the romance is important to the Matrix Resurrections. And let me tell you guys, the romance is the most important part of all three of the other movies. I was just re-watching the trilogy and they're fully like in the very first Matrix movie when Neo goes to talk to the Oracle, ostensibly about the fact that he might be the Messiah who's going to save humanity. He gets tripped up mid-conversation because she mentions like someone might have a crush on you. And he's like, sorry, what? And just like for, forgets like why he's there. And it's just like, I would like to talk about that more. Like, who do you know who? Do you know her name? And I feel like, yeah, it's like, it's so intrinsic in the DNA of that whole franchise. And also like all of, all of their movies, all of them. Yeah, they're all about love. Back to like bound, like all of them. Yeah. yeah, it's transformative power of love. That is That is the key to understanding the Wachowskis as filmmakers, they are sincere people based on the readings of the movies that they've directed or they've written is that it's about really embracing life and not sneering at things. And boy, do nerds hate that. Every kind of nerd. Yeah, I think that's the number one reason why people rejected the sequels so much is because it was no longer about the mystery of what is the Matrix. And now it's actually love will save us. What did you think, Ben, about the conclusion of the original trilogy, The Matrix Revolutions, which is maybe the one that people hate the most? I rewatched the trilogy recently because it had been a minute. I probably watched them a few years ago. I think I went to like a friend's bachelor party who's my biggest Matrix fan friend. And we were just like in a house in Palm Springs for like four days and watched all of the Matrix movies and the Animatrix. You guys go hard in the paint. Yeah, yeah. And the mates. I will be going to see Resurrections with him next week. Yeah, I... I would say that Revolutions has like sort of the least to offer because there's like a lot of ideas in Reloaded and Revolutions is a lot of battle scenes that don't have like a ton of stakes like up and down. Like it kind of is like a straight line that you're just intercutting with other stuff happening. But it's interesting because they don't really do what they were setting out to do from the very beginning. Like they don't totally unplug everybody from the Matrix and all the humans come back into the real world. Like, it ends in this very ambiguous kind of state. And I think, like, every time I watch it, it strikes me more because when I was 14 and I saw this movie, I did I don't, I definitely didn't understand, like, 80% of the plot points in the movie at all. I was like, how come Neo can do Jedi stuff in real world? I don't know. I still don't. <laughs> yeah, I still don't know because it comes back again and you have to ask the question, why is this happening in the fourth one? I think he's a Wi-Fi now. No, I think he's a hotspot. He's a hotspot. Yeah, once he talks to the architect. Do you think there's something about his DNA that got like blended with the the bots? With code. I think it's like, listen, the brain's just like a computer, man. And I think it got some of the code, like he got uh, architectpatch.exe booted up in his brain. And so he can talk to other robots and break them. Anyway, I I like the ending because they don't unplug everybody. It's kind of like everyone will have the choice whether they want to be in the matrix or not in the matrix. And I like that it kind of ended with the architect and the oracle kind of being like, well, 
new rules. People can unplug if they want to unplug. I guess let's see what happens. I thought that was a much more, I, I love something that ends the door open rather than closed. It's nice when you get like a super satisfying ending and you know, you can kind of predict every single thing that'll happen forever in that story. But I'm much more of a fan of the kind of ending where it feels like there's limitless possibilities and I don't necessarily need to see them. People used to love that about Westerns where, you know, the main character rides off into the sunset. You don't really know what's going to happen to them. Maybe they have, you know, they're shot a bit, but they're, you know, riding off um, zombie movies for the most part. Like it just ends with people kind of like taking off. Like, you know, do we have enough gas? Well, we'll see. And when an entire movie kind of rides off into the sunset, it seems to upset people. Like they're fine with a character going off, but when it, the entire story just kind of goes, it's like, we'll see around they're like come back matrix wait matrix tell me what happens does matrix get married (laughs) sorry sorry kid you're gonna have to figure that out on your own use your brain be creative that's it that's the thing that people don't like about it i think people feel like less creative because social media i think does tend to put everyone myself included in like somewhat of a hive mind a cultural hive mind and then i think that there are certain people who feel dumb they they feel annoyed because they feel like they're not because they don't have it in them or want to, to like come up with those answers for themselves, they get mad and they feel like the movie's all of a sudden against them or not for them or leaving them out. Or I do think it's that. I think it's like, a it's something defensive. Cause I think that's also a big part of like people now saying like a movie has to explicitly tell me what the filmmaker's opinion of every choice their character makes is. Did you agree that your villain was mean to a woman? Licorice Pizza is getting this so much. Daniel Plainview should say capitalism is bad at the end of There Will Be Blood, and he shouldn't win because he's capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, fortunately, The Matrix Resurrections tells you at every point exactly what it's feeling and why it's feeling that. And that is going to be good for the discourse because people are going to have a lot to talk about with what goes on in this movie. But it's it's also like, this is a little didactic. I wish you would have just, you had made this less obvious. (laughs) You don't have to point at the thing so much as just like wave your hand and say, check this out. And that's fine. The Matrix has always been both very didactic and very open ended. And I think this movie is no different than that. But speaking of endings, you know, this podcast seems like it might be wrapping up. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. But in 20 years, do you think Polygon and Vox will reboot Galaxy Brains with younger, better looking hosts. I do. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Who do you think would play uh, Dave in the reboot of Galaxy Brains? Oh, boy. I mean, in 20 years, it's probably Jaden Smith. He'll probably be paunchy and bald just like me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And mine is obviously uh, Brandon Wardell. Oh, yeah. I was going to guess Brandon for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. God willing. God willing, it's Brandon and Jaden Smith. I would listen to that. That does sound like a podcast called Galaxy Brains. I bet you they're friends now. <laughs> I see it. <laughs> they're just ripping nitrous and talking about shit. Yeah. It's like an entire podcast based off of just like going frame by frame through the Drake Kanye show. <laughs> ben, thank you so much for joining us on the possibly the last episode of Galaxy Brains. Tave, I love how much you oscillate between. It's possibly the last episode, like definitively the last episode. This is definitely maybe the last episode. There's a story, there's a there's a plot thread to this whole episode. So keep it vague the whole time. Stick with the stick with the thread. Kylie can cut it. <laughs> Kylie can cut around it. Thank you for joining us. I'm just looking forward to the prequel that's today's origin <laughs> story starring James. <laughs> I did not look anything like that beautiful young man. Ben, thank you for coming on the show and telling us about the Matrix. God bless you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. 
Each week, we wrap up the show with a Galaxy Brain take from one of our listeners. Here's one now from, oh my God, Dave, it's a call from the architect. Hey guys, it's the architect calling from inside the Warner 3000 serververse. You can call me Matt. I'm an avid listener of the show, mostly because I created it. Yep, it's true. This is all digital fairy dust straight off the old dome. But anyway, I've been listening to you and you guys are great. I mean, Dave can be a little annoying sometimes with his ums and actuallys and unnecessary digressions, talk about suits and stuff. But also, you know, you really interrupted Griffin a lot on that episode of Blank Check. Sorry, dude. I, I heard Reddit was all over me for that. Let's keep the call going. Keep the call. That said, I think you guys have evolved beyond the need to do podcasts. You've learned all that is learnable. It's time for you to join with your creator. Ew. Isn't he married? Hey, if you want to join the creator, call me at 213-570-8069. It's also listed in our show notes. Give me a call and leave a voicemail, just please, for old time's sake, and in all of life, make it weird. Fantastic. That's a wrap on this week's Galaxy Brains. Now, next week, we aren't covering anything because, uh, well, we're done. Show's over. I'm going to say it. I'm sad. I'm sad too, Dave, but think about this. We get to join with the creator. I don't know how that's going to feel. Kind of like your third Moderna shot, but worse. In all seriousness, guys, I am going to miss this show. I'm also going to miss talking to Jonah every week because Lord knows we don't speak any other time except for when we make the show. Not really friends. Not really real friends. This was all an act. Uh, what I'm really going to miss, though, is, is offering entertainment to all of you people, the audience. That was the reason why we got up every morning to do the show. Really early. Got up really early in the morning. Yeah, really early. Thank you for listening, for calling in, for sending us pictures of you dressed as gay venom and Babadook. For letting us do a pop culture podcast that wasn't mean or negative for like once in the history of the world. I hope you guys and gals and people had as much fun with this as, as we did. And by we, I mean all the incredible talents who helped make this show every single week. Those people, of course, are Kylie Holloway and me, Dave Schilling, who produced the show. The show was engineered by Dan Turek, who is incredible. If you guys want to know who made all of the weird sketches we did work. Sketches, the jingles, the little sound cues, all that weird, funny stuff. That was all Dan Turek. Dan Turek is a legend and should be working nonstop. He blew my mind with all the stuff that he did. Our music was from Gautam Shrikishan, a song that I still hum sometimes because I'm a narcissist, but also because he wrote a great song. Our executive producer is Matt Patches, who played the architect. Matt was the one who brought me into the show and said, hey, would you like to do this thing? And I said, I guess, uh, if you insist. And Matt was, was the big brain behind the whole thing. He is the galaxy brain himself. Zach Mack was our developing producer. Zach was the one who shot down all of our bad ideas and encouraged all of our good ideas. We wouldn't be the show without Zach. Chris Plant and Russ Frustick worked on the Polygon side, or still do, editor-in-chief Chris Plant. Always so supportive of the show. Russ, the director of special projects, was the one that made sure that we had the things we needed and that we were supported internally by Polygon, and he's awesome. And then special thanks to Andrew Melnizek, who helped create the show and is also incredibly supportive. And we really we appreciate everything that he did for the show. Was here sometimes on the episodes. <laughs> sometimes. I couldn't have been more grateful to have a friend like Dave Schilling who... Fuck you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, but I, I like, you know, I'm, I'm super serious about this. I was in a really tough space and like you swooped in and showed me friendship and kindness and I got to have fun with you and it was really great. Yeah, likewise, man. And I got to meet Kylie. Yeah, and our, Kylie, our producer, who... 
every time I didn't want to work on the show and I was like, oh, I won't do this. She was like, you got to do the show, Dave. And Kylie did all of the stuff that was too difficult for me to do, like the organization and the planning and the emailing strangers to beg them to be on the show. And for helping to write the show, like some of the best sketches on the show were all Kylie. Anyway, um, I'm also Dave Schilling. And uh, second star to the right and straight on till morning. Huh? That's what Kirk says at the end of Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Oh, I simply must get rid of him. <laughs>